Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. everyone and welcome to the History of England and a special episode. Today I am going to take you back to 6th century Suffolk and tell you all about the discoveries that have been made at a place called Rendlesham. Why, you might ask, why am I selling you such a dramatic dummy from the English Revolution? Well, there are two reasons. Firstly, Rendlesham is a royal site long known to have been associated with Sutton Hoo. The discoverers there have told us a lot about early Anglo-Saxon and 7th century and 8th century England. So it's exciting, basically, and I thought you'd like to know. And secondly, to tell you about a new series I am publishing into that old podcast feed of mine you may now have forgotten, the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I am doing a series called The Anglo-Saxons, Land, Lordship and People. It's all about how Anglo-Saxon society worked and changed. It's history from the bottom up, the lives of Churls and Thanes, how their landscape shapes their lives and how they shape it. I love that stuff because you can see their imprint everywhere to this very day. Anyway, we go all the way through from the early 5th century days to the 11th century and ask that all-important question, how did society really change when the Normans happened to it? Anyway... Head over to thehistoryofengland.co.uk to find out more or search on your podcatcher for Anglo-Saxon England podcast with a blue logo. A warning for members, the new series is basically the lives and landscape in Anglo-Saxon England series I did for you way back in 2017 and I thought and hoped a wider audience would appreciate it. So 
if you're a member, you may have heard about 80 to 85% of it before. Sorry about that. Just to manage expectations. I hope you're not too disappointed. So, I'm going to talk briefly about what has been found at Rendlesham, why the place existed, and the kind of lordship and society that it reflected. There have been excavations going on at Rendlesham from as far back as 2007. At one level, Rendlesham is just a small village in south-east Suffolk on the River Deben. This is the same river on which lives its much more famous cousin, Sutton Hoo. People have always known there was something going on in the general area because it gets a mensch from the Venerable Bede in his ecclesiastical history. And I'm going to tell you all about that story as well, because it's fun. It comes up in a story which tells us quite a lot about the atmosphere of the conversion period as Christians tried to convince the Anglo-Saxons to move away from their ancient gods and follow Christ. Bede has always had an eye on that big story, hence the title of his tract, of course, The Ecclesiastical History of the English People. So, in this bit, he was telling the story of the King of the East Saxons, a small dynasty that proudly traced their ancestry back to one King Sled of the 6th century. The current incumbent of the East Saxons, King Siegbert, had been a very naughty boy in the battle between paganism and Christianity around 650. Because, look, the Christians had done the job. They'd converted Sarwood, his predecessor, so the Essex box of conversion had been ticked, or so they thought. No such luck. Siegbert had backslided. His pagan kingsman had talked him round and he'd gone back to the old ways, to the old gods, and taken his people with him. Not the sort of thing calculated to get you into Bede's good books. The 7th century was slap-bang in the middle of the conversion period and local rulers and strongmen took their people in and out of the tub of Christianity like a piece of dirty cheesecloth on an old washboard. So Bede's story was all about bigging up one of his great heroes, the mighty Northumbrian bishop, Ched. Ched was a great evangelist and King Siegbert of Essex came to see King Oswu of Northumbria one day Bowled over he was by the glory and magnificence of this mighty king of the leading Anglo-Saxon kingdom of the day, Northumbria. Bishop Ched had been there and done all his stuff and Siegbert was duly convinced and baptised. Now Ched was something of a muscular Christian, so with thundering authority he excommunicated Siegbert's pagan kinsmen. As far as Ched was concerned, they were now outside the law and church outcasts not to be communed with. As a recent pagan, though, Siegbert had rather failed to take all this huffing and puffing with due solemnity. So when he got home, he'd gone round for supper with his old kinsman. Why not? Blood is thicker than even holy water, after all. Unfortunately, Ched found out. Well, priests those days were not the kind of shy, sensitive and emotional types they are now. Ched stormed over to see him, let rip and prophesied, Dire retribution. This house will be the place of your death. Which was socially awkward. But worse, from Siegbert's point of view, also true. Because said kingsman decided to murder friendly old Siegbert, take the throne and take the East Saxon peoples back to the other side to the biscuits of paganism. I realise I'm noodling. Just wanted to give you a flavour of your early bishop full of the power of the Lord and such, and in a big fight to the death with the pagan gods. The point of all this 
is that eventually Siegbert was succeeded as king of the East Saxons by one King Swithelm. We are now around the year 655. Once more, Ched got his hooks in, did the conversion job. To overawe Swithelm, he enlisted the help this time of a much more powerful king from next door East Anglia of the Wuffinger dynasty, now also Christian. The same approach he'd taken in Northumbria, essentially. Swithelm was duly baptised under the eye of the powerful East Anglian king at their grandest of royal halls, a place called, you guessed it, Rendlesham. And this was all somewhere between 655 and 663. So there you go, a pretty typical story of how ecclesiastical and secular Christians worked together to win the battle with paganism and convert the people through their leaders. So, since that time, and since Bede recorded it, people have known that Rendlesham had once been a thing. But not much more than that. But in the 1980s and 1990s, it became what I believe is known in the trade as a productive site. The old walkers found lots of bits of pottery, and lots of stuff was found by nighthawks, as I now know illegal metal detectorists are called from the annals of the DMDC, the Danebury Metal Detecting Club. The County Archaeological Society got involved and over 10 years found and catalogued 250,000 objects, some of which were not ring pools, and in fact 5,000 of them were 5th to 8th century, which sounds amazing. So look, there was definitely something down there on that site. Over the next few years, geophysical and aerial surveys were done and digs were started with over 400 local volunteers helping and working to sift and sort the objects. In 2022, the remains of the Great Hall were found and people's heads started exploding, as they do. The whole thing had been a collaboration with all sorts of organisations, academics, institutes, universities, county councils, landowners, local farmers even the antiquity searchers. If you don't know the DMDC, by the way, I strongly advise you look up The Detectorists on the Beeb, a seriously good comedy with Mackenzie Crooks and Toby Young. So anyway, what did they find? Well, in a way, they found exactly what they expected, but what they expected plus a whole load. So Rendlesham was a royal tribute centre, but its scale exceeded all their expectations. This was amazingly big. They couldn't believe it. The whole thing may have been over 120 acres with a core royal compound of about 15 acres. In the blogs on the subject, the writers concentrate on sizes expressed in terms of football pitches, presumably because that's a good way of communicating size. And I can take the point. So that is about eight football pitches. Does that help? Quite big? Anyway, the point is that it's something like 10 times bigger than any other similar centre so far found. So places like Yeavering in Northumbria or Drayton in Oxfordshire or Limin in Kent. So this makes Rendlesham look absolutely exceptional. But maybe more exciting than that even is the prospect that with further research elsewhere, it might yet be found instead to be typical. That sounds a bit obscure of me, sorry for that. What I mean is that the excavations might lead to more work elsewhere that shows there are more Rendlesham's and that these royal centres are more advanced and more complex than we thought. We are talking here right at the start of the Anglo-Saxon age. 
Randlesham started coming into its own around 5.70 and will last up to about 7.30s before it starts to decline and lose its relevance as society changes. East Anglia seems to be one of the earliest areas of Anglo-Saxon settlement. The word royal centre in these early days is really a bit of a misnomer because the kind of political units that were established were really very small regions called regio or shears. Areas of connected social and economic interaction, tribal areas. In this case, maybe covering the River Deben catchment area. Here, farms became established, and although all farms were based on subsistence, so producing a bit of everything to feed the family, some farms might be on land better adapted to arable, or some for pasture, for cattle, or whatever. So they'd focus on that a bit. Over the whole connected area of the shear, most things you needed would therefore be produced. It had a sort of political and economic integrity to it. This is a time of warrior culture, the war bands that came with their people to settle. There might be hierarchies in the farms and farmers, but all were basically free men and women in a society with an emerging hierarchy. Free except the substantial numbers of slaves, of course. So, the warriors that were more successful that acquired the greater land, enriched and attracted more followers, were essentially first among equals, but their wealth allowed them to put a greater display on, perform a leadership role. Mini-kings, you might say, petty kings, who founded dynasties. The Woofingers were the people that followed one of those families, the descendants of the mythical Woofer, around the River Deben and Rendlesham. And during the time of Rendlesham's pomp, in the early 7th century, the greatest of the Wafingas came to power and establishes his control over a much wider area than the Little River Deben. He genuinely was a king. He controlled a territory all the way westwards to Ely, the Fens, and a larger part of the future great kingdom of East Anglia. Radwold was his name, and Bede would name him more than a king of just East Anglia. He would name him a Brett Walder, with supremacy over all the kings of the English. Close by Rendlesham were the burial centres of the Woofinger dynasty at Snape and at Sutton Hoo. And the best bet is that it is indeed Radwold who was famously discovered by Basil Brown and Edith Petty. Anglo-Saxon society was based at the time around age-old concepts of the honour and respect due between free people. Of different rank, maybe, but all due dignity and respect based on shared values. So the elite, like Radwold, had established their status through leadership and conquest, and they'd gathered around them a household and gained the commendation or homage of other members of their community, their followers. They travelled around the lands of the people who gave them allegiance, pressed the flesh, listened to advice, made judgment to maintain law and order, and resolved disputes, keeping the Lord's peace, essentially, keeping society safe and working. And as they travelled from place to place, the king, queen and their household had the right to demand hospitality from their people. It was this right that became, in practice, a regular tribute, so that when they came into town, all the produce and goods from the area were ready for them to use in their household. It was never a rent or a tax connected to landholding, though. After all, most of these peasants, or the churls, rather, held land of their own and their family's right, not from the hands of the king like they would in later feudal days. They might be very small landowners compared to the likes of Radwold, but they were independent landowners nonetheless. Nor was it seen as a tax. This was formally 
hospitality freely given. Now, of course, in effect, this was a way by which the elites appropriated wealth from those of lower status. The concept of hospitality effectively legitimized something that looked darned similar to a tax. But the concept is important because this hospitality or tribute was reciprocal, and that's important. In these days, they couldn't just pick it up and go or collect and spend. In return for this tribute, elite like Radwald had a job to do. They would put on feasts and entertainment. The peasant families would all come in from their farms. They would deliver assemblies to consult with their people, administer judgments to resolve disputes. Lords like Radwald had responsibilities to protect and preserve the communities that supported them, and tribute was given as a mark of dignity with honour due on both sides, the giver and the receiver. Not that the farmers found giving this tribute easy all the time. This is very much a subsistence economy. Most people struggle to just produce enough to eat. Farms varied in size. Some would have been quite big. Peasants called yibors, with a bit of their own land, might have owed work to farms like that, just like tiny estates. Others would have been barely able to produce enough to live on and would face starvation in bad years without the help of their community. But the tribute would have been progressive in the sense that no one would have been asked to give more than they could. Society was based on the principle that every individual in the community, irrespective of age and status, had an entitlement to their subsistence. So the elite of Redlesham would have collected very small amounts from a lot of farmers rather than a lot from a few, if you see what I mean. Tribute was taking from the king's people a nip here and a tuck there because otherwise it would become something other than hospitality. The kind of render due was therefore established by custom which would slowly begin to become codified. The laws of King Ina in Wessex, for example, which would be issued in 694, laid down what was required from ten hides of land. A hide, you might remember, is a unit of land required to feed one family for a year. Now, Ina is close to 100 years later than is Radwald, but it is slap-bang in the middle of the period when Rendlesham flourished as a tribute centre. The excavations at Rendlesham have collected vast numbers of objects and developed an understanding of the layout there. So here are a few things picked up from the very lovely blog run by the Suffolk County Council. I will put links on the episode page. There are well-written, shortish articles with then longer YouTube videos. You can watch those should you wish to know more about specific subjects, such as, just for example, why the filigree work on sword pommels was surprisingly shoddy despite the use of good, high-quality materials. I don't think there is an answer to that question, though. Just a question. One exciting thing, then, was the discovery of this big 15-acre royal centre and hall at the heart of the whole complex. They have reconstructed pictures of the Great Hall at the centre of it, a big, hipped roof sort of thing. Again, have a look at pictures on the website. The hall was about 25 metres by 11, so that's 85 foot by 35 foot sort of thing, so it is big. The thought is, this would not have been alone either. There would have been other Great Halls around the complex. They normally come in groups, but the others have not yet been found at Rendlesham, so for the moment that's guesswork. The excavations of the Great Hall also seem to have found bits of what could have been plaster. So, visualising it, not only would the beams and woodwork have been ornately carved, but the whole thing might have been painted as well. Very dramatic, very lordly, very standout high status. And that would figure, 
because one of the things about the society of the time, which would become increasingly so actually, is the importance of dignity, honour, display of rank. You needed land, of course, but that was not the whole story of status. To be part of the elite, you had to look it, talk it and walk it as well. Oh, and wear it. Probably smell it. You get the idea. Such major centres like Rendlesham have parallels in the North Atlantic world, such as Goodmay in Denmark and Upwokra in Sweden. I've no doubt I've absolutely murdered those pronunciations. But anyway, there, there are centres of small regional kingdoms also. The cultural connections of the Woofingers, then these kings of East Anglia, have been identified in the past as part of this North Atlantic world. Some of the goods found at Sutton Hoo and Rendlesham have therefore founded a number of theories about their origins. One is that the Woofingers come from the eastern Sweden, but another is that they come from the same people of the poem Beowulf, the Danish Giats, fleeing conquest by a Swedish dynasty. Another little wrinkle is the existence of ornaments in something rather sexily called Style 2, so-called because archaeologists too can be wild, unrestrained and wonderful publicists, as well as serious scientists. Style 2 copies an elite style, apparently, from Lombardy and Burgundy, so that's firmly outside the core area. Robin Fleming suggests this means that Radwold's elite household was subtly suggesting to its people that they were a bit different, that Woffer and his descendants came from a conquering elite, a powerful, special family, born to leadership and kingship. And the idea of foreign invasion and conquest of that kind of elite was very much part of the Anglo-Saxon self-image and historiography. It was part of their foundation story, just as the Anglo-Saxons and the associated words are an integral part of the English foundation story, which is why it can be a touchy subject. Another exciting thing about the excavations are that they suggest the presence of a Roman temple, and there are hints that it may have been a late Roman administrative and tax-collecting centre. And there are hints, too, that it kept going through the collapse of the Roman state and the chaos of the 5th century. Now that plays to a couple of stories. The idea that many of these new Anglo-Saxon elites took over existing Roman administrative areas and that the regio or shears were based around them. It's always been recognised in some areas, such as Lincolnshire or Lindsay as it was, but more and more recognised elsewhere, too. I think that Susan Oosthausen, for example, has uncovered lots of commonality between pre-Roman boundaries and Anglo-Saxon ones around the Fenlands. And it does make sense, doesn't it? Whether you are an invader or whether, as Oosthausen suggests, you're just the same old people have changed your culture, you take over the boundaries and systems that exist. The other story it plays to is that the collapse of the Roman Empire in 410 was not quite as dramatic as it seems. I mean, it was dramatic. The economic impact was deep and severe. But civilization and society doesn't collapse. Although it does in a national sense sort of thing. But look, things keep going. So just the other day, for example, it was reported that a 5th century mosaic has been found at Chedworth, showing that people kept things going. People were optimistic. You don't create a new mosaic if you think the world is about to collapse or is collapsing around you. So smaller states and political structures emerge. Gildas's tyrants like, you know, Geoffrey of Monmouth's Vortigern. And R. Jeff, obviously being a 100% reliable historian and all of that, don't diss the guy. Like other similar English centres, Rendlesham is two things. A central, permanent craft centre, as well as the mainly temporary central elite household bit. Though there might have been a Reeve who stayed there to organise stuff as well. 
But the thing is that Rendlesham was not permanently occupied by the elite household because supporting such a household would strain the resources of a tiny shire like Deben Valley. And so they moved on. And anyway, that's just not the way lordship worked in those days. You didn't rule by paper and charter. You ruled by being there, looking in the eye, pressing the flesh, slapping the shoulder. So the household of Woofinger's dynasty moved constantly. So when they turned up, Randallstrom was transformed with temporary structures and tents springing up like colourful mushrooms. A lot of horse ornaments had been found in the excavations and a horse adorned with a harness decorated with gold mounts was an expression of wealth and status. So there'd be a lot of that when the elite were in town, although worth noting that butchery marks have also been found on the horse bones, so it seems the horses were eaten too. And you know, waste not, want not. When the household was in town, its presence would have attracted fairs and markets with merchants and traders visiting from all over Europe. They found items from the Mediterranean and a range of Byzantine coinage showing far-reaching trade links in expensive and luxury items. The coinage finds at Rendlesham are interesting, so about 30 early gold coins and more than 200 early silver pennies have been found, and there's a sort of chronology going on with it all. So... Early high-quality gold coins were made on the continent and have a pseudo-imperial style imitating the imperial coin of the Byzantine Empire. There are 25 Merovingian gold coins, the Merovingians being the dynasty in France at that time and being French, much posher, richer and more cultured, of course, though not so good bread. Then, in the 7th century, locally striped coins begin to appear in greater numbers as England begins to produce its own coinage and a smaller silver penny begins to be used for many more transactions. And then there's a final stage from about 730 when the coins that appear are much lower quality with ever greater copper alloy content and this coincides with the decline of Rendlesham as a centre. While the royal household was in town then, all this fuss and bother of markets and fairs, all of that had been going on. A centrepiece would have been very much the assembly of the people and delivery of justice. The churls and thanes and other groups in society would have crowded into the hall, excluding the slaves, of course. Slaves were very much different, very clearly identified, set apart by their absence of legal rights rather than that more nebulous marker of rank and status that we've been talking about. For the free, though, there would have been feasting. You can't have a great hall and a good get-together without feasting. After all, what would Uhtred say? Excavation suggests lavish consumption of meat during these feasts, with people mostly eating beef and pork with some mutton and lamb. While they were there, hunting would have been the thing. Hunting was ever the love of especially the elite, but even all the most down-on-their-luck churls. There'd have been hunting of deer, falconry and wild fowling. One of the other lovely things that they've done during the excavation is send mud and stuff away for analysis. Geoarchaeology, I'm told it's called, understanding what the environment was like in the past. Soil samples are analysed for plant remains, pollen, insect and mollusk remains and sediment, and it can be radiocarbon dated too. The River Deben, of course, has changed an awful lot. It's more like a canal now. But from the analysis at Cambridge University, they found three old channels of the river and found that the main channel began to silt up from the late Roman period. This suggests that when Rendlesham was in its prime, the river was too shallow to be navigable by large ships beyond the head of the estuary two and a half miles away. 
That's very interesting and rather counterintuitive, I'd have thought. But anyway, visitors and sellers, therefore, must have arrived on horseback and on foot. Lime, ash and beech grew close to the old channel and in the wider area mixed deciduous woodland with oak and azel and older by the wetter fringes, as you'd expect. In the river valley, it was wet grass and sedge fen, good for hunting. Willow grew on the drier fringes. Over time, with human intervention, the floodplain developed into grassland meadows and land clearance brought the intensification of arable agriculture. And so you start to get the growing of wheat, barley and oat close by. OK, so when all the assemblies and fairs and hunting, when they were all done and all the food was eaten and the latrines overflowing, the royal household moved on and the place grew quieter. But Rendlesham didn't disappear. The centre would probably have had this semi-permanent royal official, the Reeve, as I mentioned, and it looks as though Rendlesham supported a permanent community of maybe 100 to 200 people. These were craftspeople, working both precious metal and bronze. Evidence has been found also of antler and bone working and the production of pottery too. They ate bread and porridge and wild fruit. They kept cattle, sheep and pigs for meat and dairy products. They were also kept for wool and, of course, excavations have found loads of objects connected with weaving. Spindle whorls made of wood, ceramic or bone, clay weights which were used on a loom to tension the threads. Self-sufficiency was the rule in Anglo-Saxon England. From the 8th century, though, things begin to change. Rendlesham is less used and visited, and by the 730s, its glory days are over. There are many reasons for this. One is very much local in this case. So, 15 miles down the road, the tractor boys and girls are arriving. I mean, they don't have tractors yet, but they will do, believe you me. For the moment, though, it's pottery. Ipswich becomes a major centre, based on producing cheap pottery which is used very widely in England and sold internationally. It could also be the early growth of more permanent royal centres as the dynasty of the Woofingers grows and the Kingdom of East Anglia begins to be better defined and more closely managed, and smaller communities and shears like the Deben Valley become subsumed into the bigger entity. As we see from the fascinating document called the Tribal Hydage, the same process goes on all over East Anglia, such as with tribal groups as the Guire in the Fenland, as the East Anglian dynasty becomes recognisably royal, proper kings, rather than just petty pretend ones. So the glory days for Rendlesham were over. They had lasted quite a long time by the standards of other royal centres, maybe 150 years or so. By comparison... The days of the nearby Sutton Hoo and Snape burial centres were far shorter, focused in the middle 50 years or so. Rendlesham reduced in size, the coinage record, as I say, reduced in quality, and it becomes just like a normal farming community again. Slowly everything gets covered up and farmed over, and there's just Bede's offhand comment remaining to suggest that once upon a time, Rendlesham was something special. Until farmers and nighthawks, over a thousand years later, notice there are an unusual number of interesting bits and bobs turning up and people decide to have a look. And here we are, full circle. Do go along to the Suffolk Heritage Explorer website where you can see loads of links. I have put the link and some pics on the episode post. Right, there we are. There's my quick episode for Rendlesham. I hope you liked it. 
Watch out for the wheels of the Anglo-Saxon England free podcast starting to grind again with the screeching of wheels as the Anglo-Saxons series appears, land, lordship and people. At this very moment, there is an introductory episode available which tells you all about the new series. Now, if you're a member, you may have listened to much of it before when it was called Life and Landscape in Anglo-Saxon England, but I ended up tweaking quite a bit here and there, especially after the first episode. So, who knows? You might not have listened to it since it came out in 2019, and here's your chance. Do come along, everyone, to the historyofengland.co.uk to find out more, or to the homepage for the new Land, Lordship and People series at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash podcast forward slash Anglo hyphen Saxon hyphen England. Maybe just come to the england.co.uk and you'll see it from there. Anyway, I hope to see you all there. And whether or not I do, do let me know what you think or make suggestions for extra episodes on the website or email or on the Facebook group. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. <laughs>